spring is one of my favorite times of the year. I, I love to, uh, it, it's perfect when I can open the windows of the house. That's when I really love uh, that season of weather, whether it's spring or fall. But I enjoy opening the windows of the house, feeling the kind of the breeze come through. Um, I miss, you know, after 18 years in Brazil where we didn't have central heat and air, we almost always had our windows open. So I, I miss, you know, hearing the outside and kind of that, uh, that life. So as the windows are open, I can hear the woodpeckers peck on the trees outside of, our, uh, outside of my office window, sometimes even pecking on our, on our neighbor's deck. But uh, I can see the woodpeckers. I can hear the, the squirrels, you know, going through the leaves that are left over from the fall. Um, I, I, I can hear people cutting their grass. Uh, I see Andy and Marsha as they're out uh, in their yards uh, trying to get ready for the summer. Uh, I see Miss Betty behind us as she starts to doing things in her yard. And the more as spring kind of goes along, the less the, of we see of the houses behind us and the more we see of God's beautiful creation. The trees getting filled with their leaves, uh, the redbud trees, you know, flowering, the dogwoods with the white flowers and uh, some of the, the flowers that Kim has planted throughout the yard. Seeing those come up. But there's one thing that could ruin all of that. Any guess? Discontentment. Weeds. Discontentment is like a weed, right? And we're going to see that spiritually, but physically, I hate weeds with a passion. Because, you know, you, you plant things and you have grass and you put plants in and you, you have shrubs, but then the weeds are always trying to invade and always trying to ruin what you're cultivating and what you want to see. And I didn't plant the weeds. I didn't fertilize them. I don't want them there. I don't want to see them there, but they come back all the time. And once I get them under control at, in our little yard... Then I come to, to NCA on the weekends and they kept, they're sprouting up in all the pine straw areas that we've already treated as a church. We've spread pine straw and the weeds are starting to come up again as, as almost to say, we're back. And always, always. So gallons and gallons of Roundup. You know, Logan's helped and Samuel and other, many others have helped spray Roundup even here. And I certainly do at our house and it helps for a while, but then they come up again. Uh, there are thousands, I think, of little bitty pine trees. I mean, they, that's what they look like. They're just little bitty pine things coming up like, here we go. I hate weeds. Spiritually, we begin to grow in kind of the spring of our spiritual life. We begin to show fruit and uh, the fruits of the Spirit. And that is evidence that God's working in our life. However, the old flesh, the old man, still has many weeds that sprout up. This part of our nature, and certainly discontentment, is one of the most common. And the discontentment can really choke the joy. It can choke our effectiveness. Uh, so Paul uses a couple verses here uh, to help us to be challenged to be content in Christ. Join with me in, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10. First we see that contentment should be rooted in Christ. He says in this verse, I rejoiced in who? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's talking about the Philippian believers. But he, he starts out by saying, I rejoice in the Lord. Now, a few verses prior to that in Philippians 4, 5 through 7, we looked at a few weeks ago, he reminds us of why we can rejoice in the Lord. 
So at the end of verse 5, it says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in who? In Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say he's going to you know, guard your hearts in the possessions that he gives you, in the relationships that he gives you, um, in the health, good, the good health that he gives you. He says, no, I'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I want you to notice this next statement. Contentment is first found in someone, Jesus Christ, rather than in something. Contentment is first found in someone, Jesus Christ, rather than in something. Christ specifically commands us to be content. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, the will of God sometimes seems elusive. What job should I take? What promotion should I seek? Um, what schooling should I, what school should I go to? What's the major? Who should I pursue to as a girlfriend or boyfriend? Or, or does God even want me to be married? And all of these questions are kind of some of the big will of God questions. But there's one thing that's very, very clear that will always be the will of God, and that's to give thanks. Because it says it very clearly. Give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content. Boy, God knows us well, doesn't he? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's usually the part of the verse that we quote. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what Jesus said. Well, yes, he did. But the, the, before that, it's a reminder of, don't go after money then. Money is fleeting. Money, you know, you, you, lose, you can lose money easily. So don't go after money. Be content with what you have. And instead of looking for contentment in something or somebody else, find it in me because I won't ever leave you or forsake you. Christ also personally showed us how to be content. Think with me at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, now notice the next three words, endured the cross. I'm sorry, but that's not what I would normally think about. Okay, joy, I wouldn't think about cross coming after that. Joy, I, I think about mountain biking. Joy, I think about being with my family. Joy, I think about going out on a date with my wife or going to the beach or spending some days in the lake. I don't think about, yeah, joy, cross. But Jesus says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God the Son found great joy and contentment in fulfilling the purpose that God the Father had sent him to the world to die in our place on the cross. And he found contentment in that. Of course, he can be tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. There was, never, there was never any chance that Christ wouldn't be content, but he showed us, even in, under great persecution, how to be content. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, to hang on to. And then it explains that even further. But emptied himself, 
It was a voluntary choice, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as you think for a moment, think about Jesus. We celebrated his resurrection at Easter. Hopefully that's something you celebrate all the time and not just on Easter Sunday or Easter weekend. But Jesus, who gave the very breath of life to Adam and Eve, humbled himself to be born of Virgin Mary as an infant to begin his earthly ministry. Jesus, who with his very words spoke every tree into existence, later would carry part of a tree formed as a cross to Calvary to give his life for us. Jesus, king of the universe, lived and showed patience to even his brothers, who the Bible says for a time didn't even believe him. It wasn't until after the resurrection, it seems, that his own brothers believed that he was the Messiah, but yet he showed patience and love to them. Jesus, the creator of food, went for 40 days as Satan tried to tempt him and get him to fall, of course, again, yet without sin. Jesus, the victor over death and sin, willingly gave his life for you and for me. And so he showed us how to be content. But then notice also in Philippians 4.10, Christ providentially enables us to be content. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and then he goes on, that now at length you, Philippian believers, have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Back up a few chapters to Philippians chapter 1, and you'll see again, Paul focuses always his praise to God first. He's thanking and he's showing his gratitude to the Philippian believers, but first of all, it's focused in, this is ultimately God's blessing, and we see again that, in, uh, that again in Philippians 1, 3 through 6. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't explain why didn't the Philippian believers have opportunity? Was it that Paul didn't have the need for a while? Was it that they didn't have a messenger to be able to take something to help Paul? The Bible doesn't say why they didn't have the opportunity. The concern was always there, Paul explained. But we see Paul in Philippians 4 and Philippians 1 and then even in other passages that he writes to, to some of the, the churches at the time. He focuses his praise to God. Because after all, who moved in the hearts of the Philippian believers at that very time to think, Paul, wow, he's in prison. He probably needs some things. Epaphroditus, let's send you to be a blessing to our brother and to the apostle Paul. Who moved in the hearts of the Philippian believers to do that? Perfect. Well, let's say it all together. Okay, one, two, three. The Holy Spirit. He dwells within us and he works in our hearts to provide needs of others just as he did to the Philippian believers. So Paul is thanking God. He is showing gratitude to Philippian believers. But we have to remember, ultimately, it's through the providence of God that orchestrates all of that. That's why he could say in Romans 8, 28, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Because God's working behind the scenes. He's putting things together. We looked at that truth extensively as we talked about replacing worry with worship because God is in control. We can't see the big picture oftentimes. And, so, and, and I think a lot of times we should be thankful we don't see the big picture. We may worry more. You know, this passage reminds us that thankfully the Philippians had the concern all along. They just didn't have, have the opportunity. One commentator uh, said this. It was, it was actually Warren Wearsby, and he said, Many Christians today have the opportunities to help, but they lack the concern. So the Philippians, they had the concern, but for a while lacked the opportunity. Many of us, we have the, the opportunity, we just lack concern. Oh, you need help? That needs help? This, this area? I could serve in this area? Eh. May we be challenged by the faithfulness of the Philippians. Throughout Scripture, we see the, this focus on God as providentially uh, providing and the praise being directed to him. Think with me in the Old Testament. How did God direct the Israelites, and think back to this story if you remember, how did God direct the Israelites during the day in the wilderness? Okay, so both by a cloud and a pillar of fire, God showed himself and, and led them. How did God, God provide it? It wasn't cornflakes, but it was what? Manna. It was manna. The question is, what is this? That's, that's the idea of manna. What is this? And so every time that God would provide, that even the name of it would remind them, what is this? Well, it's something God sent. What about the water that came out of rocks? And all of these things were ultimately to show them God is providing. God is leading. It wasn't for them to worship the cloud. It wasn't for them to begin to worship the pillar of fire or to, to bottle up some of that water and put it at the corner of their house and pray to the miraculous water. I remember being in a house in Brazil on one occasion and I, and I looked behind the, this person's door. There was a bag of, of water. It was tied up and it was kind of hanging down behind the door. And I said, well, just curious, what is that? Oh, well, that keeps the evil spirits away. Wow. Okay. So we as humans, we can so misdirect our, our worship, and God's reminding the Israelites, I am the one providing for you. There's even a reference in the New Testament about, about, about how Jesus was the cloud, and Jesus was the rock uh, for the Israelites there, and making the connection of this is God's work. Even if you think about Elijah, who God used a raven to provide food. But it wasn't for Elijah to begin to, to worship the raven and then sent him to the widow of Zarephath. And there was that bottomless jar of flour and the bottomless jug of oil. But again, it wasn't for Elijah to say, oh my goodness, what a phenomenal widow that is doing this for me. But it was, it was evidence for them both, Elijah and the son and, uh, and, and, and the widow, to give praise and saying, God is doing this. He's the one at work providentially giving all of this for us. Contentment in him. Think about modern day Christians. George Mueller is a very fascinating story of faith. I've been very challenged to, to read some things about George Mueller, the orphanages that he, he's run, and one familiar story that you've probably heard, some of you have maybe heard in the past, but as he woke up one morning, the kids, about 300 at that time in Bristol, England, an orphanage, no food for the kids that morning, but he said, go ahead and pray. 
Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Lord for the food that he will provide. And so he did just that. And then after the prayer, a knock on the door, and a baker said, for whatever reason, God woke me up and just said, you, you, you need to bake something for George Mueller and the orphans, and I've brought some fresh bread for you all this morning. Thank God. Began to sh- share it to the kids. Shortly after that, another knock on the door, and a milk cart. A guy said, listen, my milk cart broke down just right in front of your door. Until I get this repaired, the milk's probably going to go bad. Could you use some milk this morning? By the way, we can. Yes, thank you very much. It wasn't, the, the, the idea wasn't for George Mueller to say, okay, we're going to name the cafeteria after the milk cart guy. And we're going to name, you know, the kitchen after the baker. The idea was God has done this. So let's give praise to God. Yes, he uses us, but the main focus should be this is God's doing. I'm going to get off on a little, little tangent here, but sometimes I think we've missed this even in our Christian circles. As God uses us to give, sometimes we want that long-term recognition of, I gave that. My name's on that pew. My plaque's on that piano. This is what I did. Really? Or did God do that through you? Who gave you the resources so that you could give back part of that to the church or to a brother in need? Don't use that, and I think Paul was kind of sharing this in a way, don't use that to manipulate the recipient. And also the recipient, as, as we are receive those things, we should be reminded, I'm not dependent on someone who gave this to me, first of all. I'm dependent on my very God who will never change. The donors may change, the ministry partners may change, uh, the generous friends may change, the government help may change, but God will never change. And so that's why I can look to his providence always. We see, you know, even in my personal life, uh, as God has used people uh, to encourage us, not even always financially. I remember one, uh, one occasion early in the church plan, and we, I received a note just handwritten on a little piece of paper and it just had a few phrases that were a, a, an immense encouragement to me at that very moment. Who moved in that man's heart to send me that note in the mail? I mean, that doesn't happen much anymore. Use it to text and email, and those things are great. But to get something in the mail, open it up in this little, this little sheet, and I exactly needed that that day. And to this, to this day, I still remember. God moved in his heart. Years back when we were going through a difficult time in our ministry in Brazil and I, and I logged on to uh, the computer. I don't look at Facebook often, but at that day I got a message from a high school friend and she said, she and her husband are both great friends of ours. She said, we're praying for you often. Thank you. We need it. What an encouragement. The countless times that God has moved in the hearts of people to, to help us even financially. Whether it's Free work as a dentist or, or a vehicle that's given to us or, or a meal out or, or whatever it may be. We're very thankful to all of those people that God has used. But ultimately, we want to look to God and say, thank you, God, for providing. Thank you. Sometimes we miss that and we, misdire- we misdirect our trust. And then as I, as I get my eyes off of God, I can begin to look at that individual or this organization or this you know, thing and, and, and think that's where my support comes from. This is where my encouragement comes from. And ultimately, it comes from God. Secondly, contentment can be enjoyed regardless 
of your circumstances. Contentment can be enjoyed regardless of your circumstances. Philippians 4.11 uh, we'll see in a, in a little bit, it's, it, but it shows that it must be learned. But first of all, I want to think about contentment is not natural for us, right? It's not natural for us. Paul says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. This, this word is translated in several different ways uh, in versions, so it's, it seems to be a difficult word to, to, to find a, an exact English translation, but the, the idea of unappeasable is not able to be satisfied or irreconcilable. goes back to discontentment. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Always looking after, you know, what's the next thing that can get me excited? What's the next thing that can fulfill the, the, the hole that I have in my heart? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. We see from the very beginning of life, for babies, that contentment is not natural for us. Babies want more milk. They want more attention. They want more time being cuddled. As they grow a little bit, then children want more toys. They want less soap, no naps, no showers, uh, more cookies, maybe the bigger piece of cake. Dad enlightened me a, a few months ago, I think it was, that he said his mom, the rule for their family growing up was whoever cut the cake had to let the other brother Choose the peace. She's a smart lady. Because children are like, no, I'm, that's my cake. I want the bigger piece. Then teenagers, they want to be more beautiful or have more muscles or more brains or nicer clothes, maybe more friends, nicer phones, maybe a car as they even get older, more abilities, uh, fewer brothers and sisters, or maybe they want different brothers and sisters. But there's things that they begin to, I'm, I'm discontent. I want a different life. Adults, we want a better job, a better salary, a nicer house, a better body, a more sensitive husband or a more caring wife or a more beautiful wife, less clothes to wash, less you know, food to prepare, uh, less hours to have to work. So from, from baby to children to teenagers to adults, it's a constant struggle. This is not natural for us. Think about the, the disciples. A couple of the disciples, James and John, they came to Jesus and they basically said, hey, um, can you save us a place in heaven? We want to sit by you, Jesus. Can, can we sit at your right hand? And it reminded me, and, and this should remind all of us of our, of our dis discontent, the natural uh, tendency to be discontent. It reminds me kind of of kids. I mean, even you go on the elevator, sometimes kids will be like, I want to push the button for the floor. It's like, just, could you just please, just, we're discontent. Peter asked the Lord about how John was going to die. Jesus had provided breakfast for them. Peter had already uh, rejected or already denied knowing Christ three times. Jesus comes back and he shows the love, his love to Peter and asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? And three times says, well, then feed my sheep. In that same passage, Jesus reveals to Peter pretty much how he's going to die. And then Peter says, well, well, what about him? 
and points to John. And Jesus basically says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And so whether we're, you know, whether you're a child or a teenager or an adult, or whether you're a disciple of Jesus Christ or even Peter, our tendency is to be discontent, to think I want something different. I deserve better than this. God, I thought you were going to. That's not natural for us. But I want you to see also that it wasn't natural for Paul. Even the Apostle Paul, this didn't come natural for him. Why do we know that? Well, look with me in Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have what? Learned. I'm not trying to be Captain Obvious here, but if he had to learn this, was there a time that maybe he struggled with contentment? Help me out. Absolutely. If he says, I have learned this, okay, well, if I've learned something, then at some point you didn't know that. You didn't know how to be content. And so Paul says, I have learned to be content, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Think with me in 2 Corinthians, how Paul uh, you may remember that he was given a thorn in the flesh. This might have been an individual that was difficult in his ministry. It may have been a visual problem that he had you know, with his vision. We're not sure exactly what the thorn in the flesh was, but we do know that Paul asked, asked God how many times to take away the thorn in the flesh. Anybody remember? Three times. So this is the Apostle Paul. This is who God has sent you know, to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews, and he's performed miracles. And, and yet three times he says, God, please take this away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul's response then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This, is not, this does not fly with secular culture and mindset and philosophy. What? You're strong when you're weak? You're independent when you're more dependent on Christ? How does that work? Well, that's the economy that God teaches us in. For I am content even in weakness and the insults. It has to be learned, but also it will be tested. It will be tested. Philippians 4.12, we see um, what I'm going to call the test of necessity and the test of plenty. The test of necessity and the test of plenty. Notice when the Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12, and I'm going to kind of pick out some of the phrases here, but it says, I know how to be brought low. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing Hunger and need. The test of necessity. Now, Paul had faced the test of necessity many times in his life. This wasn't someone who just said, you know, theoretically, no, he says, I know. I've been there. I've faced difficulty. In fact, in, second, in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12, it says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Paul is able to say, I know how to be brought low. 
I know what it means to be homeless. I know what it means to, to face hunger and to have times of need. I, I understand that. You know, you're going to face the test of necessity often in your life. Sometimes it may be financial. Sometimes you may have that medical bill come in and you, you look, you open the envelope and your sink, dro- your, your, your sink drops. Your heart sinks and you think, what, in the, what planet did these people come from that they think they can charge this much? How is that? The engine goes out in your car and you go, well, I, I wasn't planning on that. Well, we normally don't <laughs> plan for those kinds of things. It's kind of like when Christina broke her arm one time and that, that afternoon she says, Dad, I wasn't planning on breaking my arm today. I'm like, well, I, yeah, we weren't either. <laughs> but we, so these things happen and we're gonna face the test of necessity. Sometimes it will come in the form of relationships where we, we have this great need and the necessity and, and there's lack of that perhaps and broken relationships and strained relationships and God's saying, I can still help you. I can still help you to be content. Cast your cares on me for I care for you. At times, it may involve physical limitations where you, you want to do more and your mind says, you know, I, I want to do this and your body says, we can't, not anymore. There's physical limitations. You're going to face the test of necessity. Now, if you fail these tests and therefore fail to learn contentment, I want to help you to think through what are some of the results what are some of, the, some of the test grades that you're going to get back? Well, one most likely is bitterness. As you face a test of necessity, and if you don't learn to be content, and you don't learn to look at God and find your contentment in him, and you continue to look for your contentment in something or someone else, most likely if you fail that, you're going to struggle with bitterness. Is God really a good God? Um, if he really is a good God, why did he allow, and you go on in your mind, of what God allowed? Or, or why didn't he provide this, this, and this? Bitterness. Frustration. You may even think, yes, God is a good God, but is he powerful enough? Because if God truly is an all-powerful God, then he should have been able to do this, this, and this. So, God, I'm frustrated because it seems like you could do this, but you haven't. You need to look for something outside of God, perhaps, if he's not powerful enough. Maybe I need God in something else if God isn't enough. Bitterness, frustration, but then also self-reliance. Sometimes as we're faced with that test of necessity and we don't learn contentment, sometimes that can motivate us to think, then I will do everything I possibly have to do to, to be self-reliant, to, have, to, to care for myself, even if that means dishonesty, even if that means stealing, even if that means manipulating others so I can get the type of relationship that I think I deserve and that I think I want. Self-reliance. Greed is another possibility we, we see in, in Paul's warning to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. You sh- should be able to see it up on the screen. It says, but those who desire to be rich, now that's key. That phrase is very important because first of all, he's directing this not to those who are rich, not to those who have money, but he says, those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then we see the idea once again where he says, for the love of money, money's not the root of all evil, but for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So those who are facing the test of necessity can fail the test and they can become so obsessed with, I've got to become rich. I've got to be able to, to, to pull my bootstraps up and do it on my own. God says, listen, contentment can only be found in me. Then we come to the test of plenty. And some of us right away would say, God, send the test. <laughs> send it. I am ready for the test of plenty. But ironically, the test of plenty sometimes is the more difficult test above. Philippians 4.12, Paul says, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance. So what is plenty? First of all, I think we need to define the terms. What is plenty? 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Paul helps us to understand what that is, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And then notice this clarification statement, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Man, that's a a pretty short little little, little sentence there of what we should make us content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. In essence, as God provides the very basics of our life, we should be content. Anything beyond that, biblically, can be defined as plenty. So, for most, for for a large majority in our nation, many will face the test of plenty, at least financially. Now, obviously, relationships, health, those are other, but at least financially, the majority of people in our nation will face the test of plenty. If you doubt that, travel the world. And when you come back, you won't doubt it again. If you doubt it, travel the world. Most of of Americans and those who live in the United States of America will face the test of of plenty. We have, most of us have our basic needs cared for and provided. So then comes the test of plenty. You know, soon after Paul and Timothy and Luke, they were in Acts 16, God used a vision from the man of Macedonia and says, you know, come and help us. They immediately responded, and Paul and Timothy and Luke, when they got into the region of Macedonia, it says they went to a leading city in that region, a city called Philippi. As they went down to the riverbanks and they met some ladies who had gathered together for prayer. They were religious, but they didn't know Christ. One such lady was named Lydia. It says Lydia was a seller of purple. So it's very likely that Lydia was a a woman of, of material possessions, that she was perhaps a wealthy businesswoman in her day. And after Lydia accepted Jesus Christ as her personal savior, Lydia invited Paul and his, and his co-workers, come into my house. And I would imagine that Lydia probably put out the spread for them, and they probably had a great meal and probably were, were treated very well. 
Not long after that, after Paul and Silas had been in prison and the Philippian jailer accepts Christ as their savior, you know, he brings them into to their house. Uh, but then they were also released from prison and Lydia once again says, hey, come back to my house. This is maybe one occasion at least or two occasions where Paul did have plenty, where he enjoyed some of the abundance of life. He says, I, I face plenty. I, I know abundance. I know how to abound. But what's on the test of plenty? What are some things that we can expect? Paul kind of gives Timothy, and therefore to all of us, a, a study guide. Now, some of you who are about to face uh, the final exams this next week at KSU are like, oh, if my teacher would just give me a study guide. I just want to know what's going to be on, this, on the exam. Right, Sean? Wouldn't that be helpful? Tell me what to study, and that's what I'll do. Well, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go with me to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, and he gives Timothy and those, uh, all of us as Christians, a type of study guide. So as we read through this, we're going to see some of the things that are going to fall on the test of plenty, and you need to be ready, and I need to be ready. Here we go. As for the rich, verse 17, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. All right, so there's going to be an evaluation of your pride. If you have plenty, there's going to be evaluation that's going to be on the test. How prideful will you be? Will you boast or take pride in yourself and in all your possessions? Or will you boast in Christ alone? Pride's going to be on the test. And then it says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Something else going to be on the test? Self-sufficiency. In what or who will you place your trust to find your security? Will it be in everything you own? Will it be in the insurance policies that you maintain? Will it be in the investment account that you have? Or will it be in your God who owns the universe? Self-reliance and self-sufficiency is gonna be on the test. Will you deceive yourself to think, I did all of this because I worked, because I applied myself, because I, I was dedicated, I have acquired all this. Really? God can take it away so fast. This is not guaranteed. You are not uh, uh, self-sufficient. And one unexpected trip to the emergency room or one misstep on Cobb Parkway or I-75 or I-85 can drastically change your life for the remainder of your life or send you prematurely to heaven. Prematurely, we know God's sovereign, but you get the point. Self-sufficient. It's going to be on the test. You better be ready. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Priorities and evaluation of, of your priorities will fall on the test. No, 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 but I'm busy. I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I've got this work goal and I, I want to be promoted here and they've just given me this title so I don't really have time to serve outside of what God you know, has given me in all of these other things to make money and to, hold on. What about your priorities Yes, God wants you to serve at work. So don't think, well, if I'm not in full-time ministry, then I'm kind of second rate. No, you're not. If God's called you to that, then you can serve God and should serve him every day of the week, whether you're working remotely, meeting people on Zoom, meeting them face-to-face, -face, students at KSU. Those are your mission fields. But don't confuse it to think that's all that you're supposed to do. Take God into every step of your life and make God a priority. 
And when that comes to an intersection and there's a test of faith and maybe your boss or another student or a teacher tries to get you to compromise, that you immediately stand up and says, no, I serve God first. I'm a follower of Christ first. And so that is my priority. Then he goes on to say, to be generous and ready to share, generosity is gonna fall on the test. Are you open to sharing what God's given you? Or do you hoard all that God's given you? You see needs, but you justify in your mind, well, no, I, I, you know, I, no. They just need to work harder. They just need to do more. And there's sometimes where God says, I want to use you to be a blessing to them, to that organization, to this ministry, to these people. Generosity. Goes on, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Evaluation of your perspective is going to fall on the test. Do you live for just the now? Do you live for just the 75, 85, 95? If you stretch it, maybe 105 years, that little dash that's on your tombstone, is that all you're going to live for? Or will you have a perspective of, God, help me to do all that I can here on earth, but I want to live for a future that can never be taken away? Storing up treasure in heaven. Perspective. Then it goes on, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says, encourage those who are rich, those who have you know, material possessions. It's not sin in and of itself, but these things are going to fall on the test and they need to be prepared. And, and in the end, encourage them to not think and not believe the lie that this is what life is all about. Sometimes there's been the thought, you know, uh, he who dies with the mo- most toys wins. You know, for that, that kind of goes more with men. We, we like, you know, we like our, our things. That's not God's perspective. What is truly life all about? If we fail the test, we can spend our entire life trying to, to build up these things and trying to find our contentment in something. And we're going to end up being prideful, thinking we're self-sufficient, not generous, not having the right priorities. And in the end, we've missed so much of the point. The test of plenty is probably the more difficult test of the two. As we, for 10 years of our ministry in Brazil, we were working more along the, uh, the, the working class, the outskirts of the city, people who'd come, many of them had moved from all parts of Brazil to Sao Paulo looking for better work, looking for a better life, looking for better health care. Some of them, adults, trying to finish even their high school education, and they're just, they're just trying to, to make it in life. And although many of them, it didn't necessarily mean that all of them were open to Christ, but they readily recognized we need something. We have need. But yet in the middle class neighborhood that we lived in uh, for part of that time in Sao Paulo, some of our neighbors, as we would share about our ministry and what God had called us to do, some of them who, many of them especially were unbelievers, would say, we're so glad that you're working in the outskirts of the city because they desperately need that. You know why they said that? Because they felt like, we don't need it. We've got a nice house. We've got a nice car. We've got a good job. Our kids go to good schools. We have private health care. And to which I would always try to respond, all of us desperately need Jesus Christ. 
doesn't matter what social class you're a part of, every single one of us needs desperately Jesus Christ in our life. So may we be challenged as believers to find our contentment in Christ alone and not in the things that we have.